You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, June 25th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York. Roger Hurst is on assignment today. We're joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Nick Correa with the day's stories. Thanks, Ash. Today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order to Bear, Dallas, Harris, and Travis counties those most impacted by the rise in cases, to suspend elective surgeries in order to free up hospital bed and increase capacity. In the executive order, Governor Abbott said, quote, as Texas faces a rise in COVID-19 cases, we are focused on both slowing the spread of this virus and maintaining sufficient hospital capacity for COVID-19 patients, end quote. Statewide, Texas reported 4,389 hospitalizations, half of which are concentrated in the Dallas and Houston areas, the amount of hospitalizations started to explode only about two weeks ago. Governor Abbott also has halted the state's reopening plans and highly encouraged residents to stay home. He said, quote, the safest place for you is at your home. Because the spread is so rapid right now, there's never a reason for you to leave your home unless you need to go out. It's deja vu, isn't it? Yesterday, the U.S. recorded over 35,000 new positive cases, numbers that rise to the level of cases during the worst of the epidemic in April. However, the hotspots have clearly moved off into the south with Florida and Arizona and the west with California as opposed to the northeast. To those who are wondering how did we get here or thinking why are we still here, we have to consider that our prevention measures were enacted much too late. Early on in February, President Trump restricted travel from China as the first 15 cases had direct links to China. However, many undetected infections came from other Asian countries as well as Europe so the restrictions on travel from China were only partially successful for that reason. By late February, top federal health officials believed that the virus was already widespread throughout the states. Even so, domestic travel still continued on for a few weeks until around mid to late March, when much of the country began shutting down. This graphic from the New York Times shows the travel volume through the cell phone data compiled by Cubic from March 1st to March 14th. In March, officials continued to act too slow to do anything meaningful to help slow the spread. On March 2nd, Mayor Bill de Blasio stated, quote, I'm encouraging New Yorkers to go on with your lives and get out on the town, end quote. According to Dr. Jeffrey Shaman from Columbia University, he estimates that more than 5,000 contagious travelers left New York City in the first two weeks of March. Researchers have also tracked the genetic mutations of the virus to study how early outbreaks had influenced the trajectory of its spread. Variants originating out of Seattle were more prominent, but researchers have later on found that thousands of variants all pointed back to New York. David Engelthaler of the Translational Genomics Research Institute said, quote, New York has acted as a grand central station for this virus, end quote. In New York City alone, according to estimates from Columbia, more than 22,000 deaths could have been avoided if social distancing had been enacted just a week earlier. Nationwide, about 36,000 deaths could have been avoided by early May, had social distancing begun sooner. In this moment, as we witness this spike in new cases, we also need to consider how many more could have been saved. 
Before I hand it back over to Ash, I wanted to follow up on the latest developments of Wirecard Saga. The now disgraced company has filed for insolvency after they said they could not find the missing 1.9 billion euros from their balance sheet earlier this week. They're currently considering whether their subsidiaries will be covered by the insolvency proceedings. Wirecard was unable to successfully negotiate with their creditors and is now facing the likely termination of 800 million euros worth of loans on June 30th and also another loan worth 500 million euros on July 1st. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for Roddy Boyd's interview to hear the full story of Wirecard and how they got to this place. And now I'll send it back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Thank you. It's good to be back. So much to talk about today. Let's dive right in. Ed, what are you looking at? Uh, I'm looking at actually at the Chelsea-Manchester City game, to be honest with you. I mean, right before we started taping this, it was 1-0 Kristen Pulisic. He, was, uh, he scored the winning goal. And the reason, by the way, is because... Uh, Liverpool, for the first time in like 40 years, is going to win the uh, uh, the Premier League So, or, or the top flight of uh, English soccer. I think that's a big thing. I should say English football, but, you know, we're here in the United States, so I have to say soccer. Isn't it British football because Scotland is involved? Is that right? No, no. It's only no, England. Just... Yeah. They, they have a separate league in Scotland. They also have another league in Wales and in Northern Ireland. I am absolutely hopeless on English football. Yeah, you know, somehow I knew you were going to say that. And I was thinking to myself, Ashley Bennington with a name like that, on sh shame on you. Uh, it's it's the ties, man. It's hard to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, to to be honest, uh, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at. Uh, I saw something on uh, uh, from Axios actually that gave me some thinking about the recovery. They were talking about this thing called the reverse radical uh, recovery, which is something that I've been talking about a lot recently. Uh, and the real question now, I think, is not about the V-shaped recovery, even though that's what you see in the markets. It's about the difference between a snapback rally and a slow uh, uh, move out, which people are calling the reverse radical, which is an in inverted or uh, a flipped uh, square root sign radical for square root. And uh, and the other possibility is a W-shaped recovery. That's where you have a bounce back, you come up, and then uh, after that come up and you go down into a second recession. So those are actually, for me, uh, the base cases going forward, whereas the market is priced for the V-shaped recovery. And this is what Larry Kudlow will tell you on, on the news. And so I'm looking at the data that comes out in uh, from that perspective. Yeah. You know, first analysis, uh, when you have to invent shapes like inverse radical to describe a recovery, it's probably not a good sign. But, you know, that brings me to something we talked about, the W-shaped recovery. Uh, you did an interview that just was released today uh, with David Rosenberg, formerly chief economist at Merrill Lynch, now on his own at Rosenberg Research. This is a just a tremendous signature piece for Real Vision. I could talk about the first 10 minutes of this interview for the whole half hour. Uh, when you talk about W-shaped recovery, what were David Rosenberg's view on where the recovery is and its shape? 
Yeah, I think that he was talking almost as if, uh, you know, if we were to have a W, it would all be part of one recession where you saw the snapback and you saw a a dive back down, but really that you would call it one continuous recession because I know in some of his research, he's talked about having flip ups within a recession. You know, you have uh, one leg down, one leg up, one leg down. And he went through all of the past recessions. There have always been, it seems, since the early 80s, one quarter that was anomalous where you had uh, what seemed to be a recovery, but it didn't uh, follow through. So that's sort of how he's talking about it. The, the thing that he said the most that for me triggered sort of the most anxiety about the, the ability of the markets to overcome a potential recession was when he talked about high yield spreads. Um, he talked about high yield spreads being at about half the level uh, that they were at the worst in, in March um, 2020. But the interesting bit is if you look at it over time, the levels for high yield spreads are lower than they have been in, in peak times uh, in 2004, you know, 2010, 2016 even. And so they're lower today, uh, despite the fact that we've had uh, you know, massive unemployment and we've had a, a huge uh, sp uh, spike down. If you look at the chart, actually high yield spreads never went to the levels they went to in the 2008-2009 crisis. So what that would lead you to believe is either A, the Fed has artificially suppressed them in a way that will be positive for the economy going forward because somehow we'll ride through this or that the spike in high yield lies ahead of us. It's in front of us uh, because the Fed won't be able to suppress uh, the, the default rates that will cause high yield to spike. So the interview with Rosenberg, for me, that was the frightening part of it, is, is that you could potentially have some sort of liquidity crisis, if you will, in high yield and then the Fed would be forced to react to that in some capacity. Yeah, I I found that frightening as well. Did I hear him correctly when he said that uh, he thought that high yield should be priced a thousand basis points higher than it currently is? Yeah. So I mean, it, at, at its worst uh, during uh, you know when we had the panic, it was only at twelve hundred basis points at that time. The spreads they were something like two thousand basis points in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and now we're down to six hundred. So six hundred would take you up to sixteen hundred. That's not even as high as it was in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. So that gives you a sense of you know how levitated markets are relative to you know how sharply the real economy has gone down. Yeah, he talks extensively about liquidity issues to your point. Um, and he says basically, and this is a quote that struck me, quote, the Fed is equipped to deal with liquidity issues, not solvency issues. He calls the interest rates egregiously low. Uh, he talks about high yield. Uh, and then he talks about huge transfers from government sector to the private sector. Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, we could call that socializing losses. This is you. you to a degree, you could say this is the role of government is to provide some sort of mechanism to keep the economy afloat at large. But the question is, how does it do that, uh, especially when you have businesses and you're trying to decide between solvency and uh, and, and liquidity crises? Uh, if you were to make those who are insolvent solvent, 
rather than those who are illiquid liquid, you're basically uh, lowering the future productivity of the of the economy. You're uh, giving a bailout to zombie companies that will uh, lower GDP growth in the future. So it's the zombification, if you will, of the the economy. And I think this is what we titled the um, the the episode. And he talks about Japan in that matter. Uh, you know that we're moving to where Japan's moved already and is potentially coming out of right now. Yeah, and on the household side of the equation, he talks about how half of American households did not have adequate liquidity uh, to meet this crisis three months, basically. Yeah, and we, we knew that coming into the crisis, the, all, all the uh, polls had said, you know, how much money do you have uh, if uh, there was a rainy day and the number was very low? Uh, you can make a moral judgment on that, or you could say that it's a reflection of the kind of society that we've been living in in the United States, where you know large swaths of the population are low income, uh, they can't get higher incomes, and therefore they don't have any disposable income, irrespective. Yeah, it's it, it could be less a savings rate issue than uh, a rate of uh, income versus what the actual cost of living is. And that is a challenge for many people. Yeah. And let me say in terms of that, you know, in terms of when you think about tax cuts or you think about the handouts and things of that nature, when you're thinking about uh, marginal propensity to spend and the ability to get the economy going, you know, if, if there are a lot of people who uh, don't have a lot of money and therefore, uh, you know, when they get cut and bad things happen to them, they're going to spend the large majority of that money. So they, it's going to help the economy keep going. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're giving money to people who have a lower marginal propensity to spend, that's not going to be very helpful in terms of boosting the economy over the near term. So, yeah. uh, you know, tax cuts or uh, you know, government spending has to be addressing that question if you really want to get the, the boost that you're talking about. Yeah, and the 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 theory or the thesis behind that is people who have high incomes have a relatively high marginal propensity to save or invest rather than consume with their additional income uh, that they would get from potentially fiscal stimulus like tax cuts. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I thought was very interesting that uh, Mr. Rosenberg was talking about was he was talking a bit about a sector by sector analysis. He said he's, quote, massively negative and has there are massively negative implications for commercial real estate. He's very bearish for office real estate and for autos potentially because of the l reduced commuting. He basically said, look, we're in a period where the experiment with working from home seems to have worked. In fact, it seems to have worked better than many people expected it would. In fact, that's exactly what we've seen here at Real Vision. Um, and but that's an interesting take on what's going to happen potentially to office real estate. Who wants to go to work in a high rise tower today? Yeah, no one. And with I thought he was somewhat equivocal with regard to autos. The sense that I got was he said he could go either way in that actually it might be a positive sector in the sense that public transport is now out. So maybe autos would do better than you might uh, expect uh, given that outcome. Yeah, important clarification. He was definitely much more bullish on the commercial real estate space. And interestingly enough, uh, bullish for internet and infrastructure and tech infrastructure, meaning computer hardware uh, and for video conferencing, just what we're doing right now. Right. Yeah. With that uh, fancy red mic that you have right there. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you know, one of the, the behind the scenes thing that we've been spending an enormous amount of time on here at Rovision is uh, hooking up eGPUs, something that many people did not know existed before this. These are basically external video cards uh, that plug into the back of uh, your computer so that you can offload some of the processing power required to do high end video conferencing. One would have to think uh, that would be a bullish and growth industry for the future. Definitely. I think there are a lot of different uh, uh, things that are that you were uncovering that you could uh, be bullish about. I mean, in part, this is why the markets rallied. I mean, a lot of it is clearly, uh, you know, liquidity, but a lot of it is thematic. And what we saw, it, what we're seeing now is a rotation out of cyclicals and back into those plays, growth and so forth. That was what we saw the biggest sell off yesterday when there was a sell off was out of those cyclicals and into these uh, these plays that we're talking about right now. One thing that I thought was interesting, by the way, in terms of what Rosenberg had to say, was he talked about duration. And before he had been talking about his highest conviction was to, to extend duration, long duration plays. And the reason that he was talking about longer duration is, is because he saw you know, subpar growth for a longer period of time. And if that's the case, then you're gonna, then duration, things that are long lived assets, especially like, 30-year bonds, 10-year bonds, those tend to outperform in those environments. But he also now has said gold is more of a conviction play for him than long duration is. And the sense that I got is it, not only is it because it's a hedge, but you know there are two reasons to think about it. Actually, gold is the longest duration asset that you could have. It has infinite duration, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is that uh, during financial repression, that is, is when interest rates are are lower than the inflation rate so that net you have negative interest rates why not own gold gold doesn't pay you an interest but if you're getting negative interest there's no reason not to own gold there's no penalty for holding right. gold when interest rates are negative i also saw that kevin muir who i've spoken to at real vision a, a bunch of times he also was saying the same thing and he did a little a chart he flipped over the chart showing uh, interest rates uh, in terms of when they're negative and when they're positive, and then the gold price. And the the, the correlation was very high. So yeah. when interest rates are, on a real basis are more negative, gold tends to go up. Yeah, especially because gold actually has an, a negative carry, right? You have to store it physically somewhere. You have to own it through some paper vehicle. But uh, precisely to your point, Ed, when interest rates are negative uh, or even very low, the capital appreciation uh, and uh, even just uh, capital preservation component can tip the scales that make it look much more appealing than during ordinary times. Right. And so uh, David Rosenberg was saying uh, it's not necessarily the case that it's only about inflation. There's more to it than that. Gold has other purposes. And so I thought that was very interesting that he was saying that because he's not a gold bug. But right. You know, the last time that I spoke to him in January, he was also talking about gold. He's mu he's moved much more into that case. If you had followed him and, you know, that I think he was already saying that that was one of his biggest, uh, you know, positions, so to speak, you would have uh, done quite well. Uh, is there upside? He thinks that there is still upside to that to that play that we're going to see negative real interest rates for a long time to come. Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting point. When people who are not traditionally uh, interested in gold start looking at gold, these are not the usual suspects. David Rosenberg is not someone who's been uh, really positive on gold over the long term. So that is a very interesting change. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, one one might take a contrarian view, but 
he's been uh, he's been talking about this for over half a year now and he's also saying that the trends that make this uh, in play will continue to be in play for quite some time and therefore you know he feels that it's it's a trade it's an investment that has legs over the medium to long term which you know for investment ideas which is the show that i was doing is 18 to 24 months yeah such a great interview. If you haven't checked it out already, uh, do so. You'll enjoy it. Any final thoughts, takeaways from the Rosenberg interview? Uh, you know, I, I had a tweet actually where I talked about some um, different thoughts. I'm not exactly sure what I had said, but in, in that tweet, one of them was about Japan. I thought it was interesting that he was relatively bullish on Japan. I sort of probed as to why. Uh, some of that has to do with the demographics in terms of women coming into the workforce. Uh, also, you know, they've gone through the, the zombification. They're coming out of that. And uh, he seems to think also that their social model in terms of 2.6% unemployment uh, protecting workers uh, during this uh, COVID crisis and also uh, dealing very well with the pandemic uh, shows a uh, the, the the positive side of their social model, whereas we've previously seen it in a negative way. You know, in the United States, the the thinking is 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 that if you can uh, get, let go of people easier, fire them easier, then you can hire them back also easier. But what we've seen is is that you know we have double digit, and in some cases, if you look at the U6 number, twenty percent unemployment in the United States, whereas in Japan they have two point six percent unemployment, and that means that they're going to be able to get over the recession much easier, uh, that they're in a better position going forward. So he was relatively positive about Japan. Yeah. Uh, talking of which, let's we're going to cover um, some of the negative developments uh, on the COVID front uh, and some pretty negative economic data, a whole raft of data that came out today. Uh, but first, let's just wrap the markets, which, of course, naturally enough, are higher because we've had terrible economic data and really sobering news uh, on the COVID front. So here, here's where we are. S&P closed at 3083 today, up 1.1% on the day. The Dow up closed at uh, 25745, up 1.2% roughly on the day. Uh, NASDAQ closed over 10,000 once again at 10,017, up 1.09% on the day. Yes. Yeah. As, as we joke uh, in our group, we talk about usually what they say, terrible economic data as the market falls or, the uh, you know, uh, making the connotation that terrible economic data means that the market fell because of the data. But here, we have, you know, the, the headline would be something like, you know, mixed or to negative economic data as market rises. It, it just goes to show you, it, it, there's not a causality there whatsoever. Yeah, at all. We were joking about this yesterday. Jack pointed out that one of the key weasel words uh, you see in news headlines is amid. So, okay. you know, X stock is up uh, Y percentage, but, you know, there's some news that you want to attribute it to, but you can't. So you use the word amid. Amid rumor of, you know, additional stimulus, right? Or whatever it is of the, the, the sort of story du jour of the day that you want to peg it to on a news hook when there's really no basis for making that connection. But, you know, to talk through things that are happening actually in the factual world, you know, so Texas effectively has halted their economic reopening. They're going back into lockdown mode. Uh, elective surgeries have been banned in four Texas counties. Uh, there's some significant 
emergency room problems in the Houston area. Uh, according to Bloomberg, Arizona's new infections are increasing at double the weekly average, and Florida has reported infections that have rose, more, risen more than one above the one-week trend. Uh, and then there's a story out about a vial shortage. I don't know if you saw this one, Ed. But no, I didn't. There's there's a there's a there's a story going uh, right now. Bloomberg reported on this one as well that there's a fear of a vial shortage for COVID vaccines. Bear in mind the COVID vaccine that we do not yet have. And the implication of this, the broader context is that there are concerns that even if a vaccine were developed, which we don't know if it will be, and if it is, we don't know when, there are significant challenges logistically to actually deploying the vaccine to a wide array of the American population and indeed the world population. And there are now fears of shortages of the vials to distribute a vaccine that doesn't yet exist. Yeah, Roger, he's been talking about that, actually. In the last month or so when I talked to him, he was talking about the logistical problems with getting everyone vaccinated, uh, you know, 7 billion people, if you will, in the entire world. And, uh, you know, the numbers, if you went through the numbers in your head, how many vaccinations could you do uh, per week? And then how many weeks would that be in order to to get uh, to herd immunity? as a result of that. And uh, the numbers that he was talking about, as I recall, uh, sounded like, you know, two years to uh, to really get the full gamut uh, going. And uh, that doesn't give you a whole lot of uh, confidence that the vaccine is going to be the silver bullet. Yeah, absolutely. Roger was way ahead of the curve on this one. And his projections and analysis were assuming we had ample containers to actually distribute the vaccine, right. which now seems to be in doubt. Again, the vaccine, which doesn't exist. So that that's where we are right now. You know, uh, speaking of the coronavirus, I, I was writing at credit write downs today. I was thinking about the difference between the square root, the reverse square root, also called the reverse radical uh, recovery and the W, which is basically a double dip. And, you know, I've divided into two buckets. There are three that I think are major, three that are less major. And I would say that it is the a second wave that is the most important factor. So the, the three that I found the most important are a high spike in second wave infections, a policy error in monetary fiscal policy, and then a spike in default bankruptcies and or unemployment. This is the David Rosenberg thing that we're talking about. And then I think garden variety recession types of things are things to think about. You know, there's a, there could be a fall off in, in uh, spending due to precautionary savings. We're having a spike up now. Part of that is pent up demand, but maybe underneath that there's still precautionary savings that could cause, uh, you know, in the past things like that have caused a ripple that lead into other parts of the business cycle like um, the inventory cycle and also capital investment. So those are three sort of uh, what I would call garden variety recession indicators I look at them as less important, but those first three that I mentioned, those are the most important things in terms of deciding whether we're going to have uh, a square root uh, reverse uh, radical recovery or we're going to have a W style recovery. So, Ed, when you mention those three warning signs, what are the data points that you're going to be looking for to determine whether or not the thesis has been confirmed? Well, we already know in terms of the spikes. I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking in terms of death counts per se. Uh, I'm thinking more in terms of a spike in uh, case counts for coronavirus 
in hospitalizations, you know, overwhelming hospitals, and then exactly the sort of thing that you talk about with Abbott, and not just a uh, halting. He said he's halting. He didn't say I'm reversing the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, post lockdown protocols. He's halting them, but then potentially reversing them. Now that would be a really bad sign because I think that would also uh, negatively affect consumer spending, and it would be very perniciously bad for the economy. The second thing is monetary and fiscal uh, stimulus. I'm just looking for specific data points on uh, what they're doing. Uh, For instance, in the case of uh, a spiking high yield, which is the third part that I talked about, defaults, bankruptcies, and unemployment, what's the response from the Fed? Uh, Are they going to go down into ETFs? Uh, equity ETFs? Are they going to, uh, you know, backstop individual high yield names that are defaulting? That's that's a moral hazard that I don't I don't believe that they're ready to take. Would that be a policy error? Irrespective of how you look at it, that that's those are the kinds of things that you're looking at. But more importantly for me is fiscal policy because right now we have the potential runoff of a lot of different types of stimulus. The six hundred dollars a week uh, for unemployment. We're talking about mortgage forbearance. We're talking about student loan forbearance. We're talking about auto loan forbearance. We're also talking about credit card forbearance. Any of those things in the United States, uh, if you uh, stop that, you could see suddenly people having much less money to spend, and that could trigger a a secondary, uh, uh, you know, a W-style recession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, talking of data points, we've mentioned these uh, the economic data before. I want to run through them real quick for our viewers uh, if you haven't had a chance to see them yet because they're worth thinking about. So durable goods uh, rebounded plus 15.8% month over month uh, for May. But let's bear in mind that this is uh, last month uh, was declined 17.2% and then revised down to 18.1%. So again, you know, we have some tailwinds, more orders uh, for automakers, as well as decreased cancellations at Boeing. But in the general context of just how severe uh, this durable goods slowdown has been, I don't know that there's a whole lot to be excited about there. Well, let me uh, put that in context because uh, it, just think about it this way. Uh, let's use the number 20% because that's easier to, to deal with. If you are up 20%, you go from 100 to 120, and then you go down 20%, uh, <laughs> then you're, you actually go down below 100 uh, the same thing is true if you go down 20% to 80, and then you go up 20% from there. 20% more is less than 100. So the 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 number for not only is the number lower than the amount go- that you went down, but that's how numbers work in terms of the math. So we're, you're not back to where you need to be, and all of the numbers are like that. So that's why when we talk about this, the the uh, the downdraft, we talk about the downdraft being large. And then the uptick is not quite as large. It may be a large uptick, but it doesn't get you back to where you were when you started. Yeah, exactly right. And um, so you have the numerical aspect of the way percentage changes work, and then also a declining base effect here. So these numbers uh, are, I think, you know, we can talk about them as mixed, but I, I don't feel a whole lot to be excited about on that. Well, you know, I, you know, I would say that, and I think that when people were, uh, People were talking about the recovery 
when I talk about the end of the recession, uh, let me just say that potentially this is the end of the recession. Let me uh, read something for you that I thought was interesting in terms of how the uh, the Fed uh, or the NBER talks about recessions, because uh, what they've said is, is, is that this is how they, they described the, the, uh, the beginning of the recession. They said, for example, in the case of February 2020, uh, the February 2020 peak in economic activity, the committee concluded that the drop in activity had been so great and so widely diffused throughout the economy that the downturn could be classified as a recession, even if it proved to be quite brief. Mm. So if you if you use that definition on the way down, you can use that definition on the way up. 15.8% in durable goods and all these other numbers that we're seeing, it's such a huge snap back. It may not be back to 100%, that I believe that the NBR may well be forced to call a, a a recovery. That is, the recession is over. The recession was February to uh, uh, March to April to May, and it ended in May. And now we're actually in the middle of a recovery. So the reason that that markets have been rallying is because we're in a, in a recovery. Uh, the question is, is what kind of recovery and whether the markets have overdone it and whether yeah. or not there's a double dip on the other side of that. Yeah, great points. It's all about the slope of both the downdraft and then the and then the snapback as well. And of course, NBER is the official dating uh, organization that officially dates recession. Y you know, and that's actually a perfect setup. The, the third uh, estimate for uh, U.S. GDP came out as well today. There, there are three estimates. There's the advance estimate, second estimate, and the third estimate, reaffirming minus 5% uh, GDP growth. Um, you know, this again comes on the heels of yesterday. I'm not sure if we mentioned it, uh, but IMF downgraded global growth to minus 5%, uh, revised down from minus 3% from their prior estimate. And, you know, something to think about when you give that number is, you know, I was looking at the data of early in this year. And as I recall, uh, we were uh, trending at something in the order of two to three uh, percent. If you looked at, say, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, now cast, that's where we were, uh, you know, as of February, as of the beginning of March. Yet the number that came out for Q1 was minus five percent. So we were only locked down for the last half of March. So when you think of trending toward 2%, 3% for two months, two and a half months even, and then coming out at minus five, that's an enormous downtick uh, as a result of the lockdown. If you take that for April and then for May when we were locked down, you can imagine that this next number for Q2 that comes out is going to be absolutely horrific. So minus five is going to end up being more like, you know, minus 15, minus 20 percent, something that we've never seen before in any of the dates, because this historical uh, series only goes back to 1946, I believe. Yeah. Incredibly important points there. The delta now seven points below trend, seven percentage points below trend, uh, and then the additional effects of potentially more. The other thing that caught my eye on the data front today, and I know we're running a little bit late, but I want to hit this before we do the jobless claims number. Uh, Census Bureau is now doing advanced estimates on U.S. trade in goods. The May estimate was minus $74.3 billion. This is in dollars. Uh, here's what I think is interesting about that. That number is lower than the prior print, which was minus $69.7 billion in April, 
lower than prior revised, which was minus 70.7 billion for April, lower than consensus, which was minus $68.2 billion for May, and lower than the bottom of the consensus range, which was between minus 70.7 billion and minus 63.0 billion. This pretty ugly number. So what do you think is going on there? I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked at that number. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the trivial first to top line thing that would grab me would be when numbers are substantially below consensus, below prior, and most shockingly, when they're below consensus range, uh, I think it's something that you, you look at and you think this is clearly uh, a material impact on global trade. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, it, it's going in one direction down. It, you, you could spin it positively in, in terms of it says that consumption growth uh, from U.S. Uh, from abroad is so great that uh, it caused the number to go down. Alternatively, depending upon, you know, what the export versus the imports are, it's that, you know, consumption in the United States was so horrific that we, we bought so much uh uh, people bought consumption growth was so horrific uh, in the entire world that people bought so much less from us. It caused our trade numbers to go down. Something of that nature. Yeah. It all depends. You know, the the uh, the devil's in the details. And since I haven't seen it, I can't really say if uh, if it's really as negative or or if it's just a a, a push. Yeah, we'd have to dig into the internal dynamics, but this does represent, uh, you know, a, a, an increase in the in a in a trade deficit, which uh, on its face is not a positive thing for the U.S. Um, for the for the U.S. balance of payments. Exactly. Yeah, and and finally, uh, the jobless number essentially unchanged, uh, basically flat at 1.5 million. This is the weekly claims number, uh, so that's roughly unched from the first three weeks in June. Uh, that number was above consensus, above the top of the consensus range. Uh, again, worst numbers here uh, are higher. So this is sort of the same phenomenon we saw uh, in the prior data series below, in this case, above the worst case scenario. So not great from relative to consensus. Well, you know, let me, uh, this is a number that I'm familiar with because I've been following it for 20 years, the jobless claims number. And I look at jobless claims because generally speaking, up until recently, when we've had some reporting problems, they've been the best real-time data source that you have for what's happening in the economy. If you look at the deltas, it can tell yeah. you directionally uh, where you're headed. And I find it very curious that the numbers that came out for jobs in May were as good as they were given where jobless claims have been trending. I mean, if you look at 1.5 million and you compare it to say 2008, 2009, yeah. At its worst, you know, it was something like five, six, seven hundred thousand. Uh, now you're at one point five. Still, you know, three months into this thing, and so how is it possible that you added jobs to the economy in 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 the numbers that came out in May? What I, what those numbers are telling you is is that the U.S. economy is still hemorrhaging jobs. And yep. so when you look at the list that I had in terms of the six uh, things that could potentially uh, crush the economy, it falls into number three. When I say a spike in defaults, bankruptcies, and or unemployment, it, it's not necessarily a spike, but a continued rise in unemployment uh, when people are expecting unemployment to be falling. 
the the Fed has said they're they're expecting something like nine point three percent by the end of the year. If these numbers continue to be as they are, even if they start to fall, let's say they fall to one million, uh, and and they trend down to eight hundred thousand by the end of uh, the summer, there's no way. You, even then you're going to get to 10% by the end of the year. So that's not good. Not good at all. And a very good point about the higher frequency data series. We were able to check these against the unemployment rate numbers to get a better sense of balance. And it does suggest that perhaps not as rosy as we thought. If you look at the chart over time, you can see obviously it spikes in, in April and then it begins to decline pretty dramatically uh, through May, but stalled here in June, three weeks in a row at this number. Uh, the other chart that we could point to is what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, when, even when you look at the Great Recession on a chart, it looks relatively smooth and almost horizontal. There's a little bit of a bump in the center. And then when you go into 2020 and you see this just vertical spike straight up, it is absolutely sobering to look at the magnitude of that. Every time I see this chart in different permutations, although I know what the data say, it's still shocking to me to see that number at near 7 million at peak. I think that you're, you're spot on there when you talk about the fact that there's a huge spike. But even, even now, uh, when we're above consensus uh, at 1.5 million, this is three months into this whole thing. That's that has to be concerning because that's double the the amount at its worst, more than double the amount at its worst in the Great Recession, and, and we're three months into this. Uh, so that's telling you that the order of magnitude still, even post lockdown, is 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 high. Yeah, absolutely. I think the most positive thing that you could say is that the jobs recovery appears to be stalling. And that's yeah, the I mean that's, that's the the, the, <laughs> the best thing you could say is 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 that uh we're we we're trending lower in terms of uh jobless claims. That's that's the best you could say. We're trending lower to a number that's still 1.5 million. Well, so of course the Nasdaq would be up over 1% today and closing above 10,000. What else would you expect? Exactly. So, I, you know, you get at the point of this this whole discussion. So the the question therefore is is what is the market discounting? What is the equity market discounting? What is the bond market discounting? What's the high yield market discounting? And I think that you're seeing three different markets. I think you're seeing equity the most uh, bullish. Uh, they're discounting the V I think the high yield is uh, discounting, you know, a V-ish uh, recovery, and I think the bond market is probably discounting something like the uh, reverse radical recovery. None of them are discounting the W-shaped recovery, and the reality is that uh, we lie somewhere between the reverse radical and the W, from my estimation, and therefore the biggest risk to the downside is it first in equities, then in high yield and actually upside in bonds because uh, you're going to see uh, some bull flattening as a result of any sort of downside risk to the economy. Yeah, the bond market definitely seems to have a better pulse on the macro situation. U.S. equity markets, what are they discounting? I guess you could say your guess is as good as mine. I, I would suggest that it's probably fiscal stimulus uh, and monetary policy and some sentiment index uh, driven by day trading and a series of other factors that for whatever reason seem disconnected uh, from the global macroeconomic outlook, from the US macroeconomic outlook and from the bond market, frankly. 
Yeah. And, so, you know, when Facebook and when Google and when Microsoft and Apple are trading at 30 times earnings and three out of the four of those companies are, are worth dollars, $1 $1 $1 $1 you know that uh, you're, you're seeing some spectacular V-shaped recovery stuff uh, that's being implicitly priced into those shares. Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's uh, that's half of uh, one round of fiscal stimulus. It's a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. On that note, Ed, thanks for joining us. Feeling good, Billy Ray. Looking good, Lewis. I'm never going to get this one right. <laughs> Excellent. Good to talk to you. <laughs> thanks, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.